Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Once again, it's hard to disassociate legal issues from much of the day's news. That's why we convene our legal roundtable panel every month to help us make more sense out of it all. Here we go again. Joining me in studio are attorneys Bill Freivogel. He teaches journalism at SIU Carbondale. Back after an extended summer hiatus is Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. And joining us once again is Brenda Talent, the CEO of the Show Me Institute Public Policy Think Tank. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Nice to see you all. Good seeing you. Brenda, good to have you back. Well, this subject has gotten a pretty good workout on radio and television over the last 20 hours or so, but I can't have three lawyers in the room and not talk a little bit about uh, Messrs. Uh, Cohen and Manafort and their court appearances yesterday. Uh, let me put a very general question to each of you. Brenda, I'll start with you if you don't mind. Um, what do you make of yesterday's events in a very general way? Well, in a very general way, obviously, um, Manafort was convicted of eight counts. Um, he, there was a a mistrial on 10, so he could face another trial on those 10 if they decide to move forward with that. And he's got a second trial in Washington, D.C. None of the the allegations relate to issues related to the president. On the other hand, Cohen's uh, guilty plea does implicate the president in a possible campaign finance violation. And so that plea was one, I think, that got a lot of people's attention. Mm-hmm. Bill? What can we add to that? Well, I, I just think yesterday was an extraordinary day. These two, these two um, court actions coming right after each other within just a few minutes of one another. I mean, I don't remember a, a similar kind of uh, extraordinary uh, uh, news day like this recently. Um, and you're, as, as, uh, I, th- I think that the conviction of Manafort on the eight uh, counts was – um, a, a very important victory for the the uh, for Mueller uh, had had there been acquittal uh, or a mistrial, it would have given credence to President Trump's claim that this uh, you know is just all part of a witch hunt. Um, so you know, a, a conviction on eight counts is is a major victory for the independent counsel. More, uh, more important, however, though was. Uh, was Cohen's uh, guilty plea and his direct implication of the president uh, in violating campaign finance laws uh, to hush up uh, Stormy Daniels, right? Mm-hmm. That, that he was complicit in that, right? Okay, Mark, and the, and the and Cohen he, thing wasn't um, Mueller; it was Southern District of New York because Mueller right. referred it back to the Department of Justice, and then they gave it to the Southern District. A little different from what happened with the Ken Starr investigation where, remember, Janet Reno kept expanding and, and he investigated a lot of stuff. And I, I think this is more how it's supposed to work. Brenda, why is this so important, this uh, implication and suggestion from Cohen that the president was complicit in the, in the uh, payoff to Stormy Daniels? Well, there is a, a criminal statute for um, campaign finance violations where uh, the money involved exceeds 25000 you could face up to five years of imprisonment. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion, and, and really the question is can we have a discussion about it because there are some very legal, important legal questions raised about that particular criminal statute. You know, you have to have intent. It has to be knowing and willing violation. And uh, when you're dealing with money that's not coming from a campaign, that's not directly related to the campaign, 
it's it's subject to some discussion. And I'll just give you an example. For example, if you're running for office and your wife says, I'm going to divorce you. And you, as a candidate, say, don't do that before the election. You know what? I'll buy you a really pretty diamond necklace. Just stay with me through the campaign. And the wife does. Well, should you have reported that as a campaign contribution? Mm -hmm. If you buy a suit to look good on a commercial and you spend your own money, Mm -hmm. is that subject to being reported as a campaign expenditure? That's sort of where this thing becomes a little bit slippery. Mm -hmm. Where do you draw the lines? Um, Obviously, here they do have a statement in the plea agreement where the individual is saying, I was doing this at the direction Mm -hmm. of President Trump in order to uh, avoid affecting the the election. Is it potentially, though, an impeachable offense? It absolutely would be an impeachable offense, but it's up it's up to uh, it's up to Congress to decide whether to to go that route. I mean that that would I think be very much farther down the road. It would require the Democrats mm-hmm. to win the House. Uh, presumably, there would then be impeachment hearings. Um, or possibly there would there could be impeachment hearings. It would all depend probably upon Mueller's report to Congress, uh, which one expects sure. to be forthcoming. I mean, th- but this p- yesterday put Trump in the same position, similar, a very similar position. I mean, the, the the thing that just kept echoing in my head was unindicted co-conspirator. Yeah. You know that term we all re- associate with Richard Nixon when the Watergate grand jury. Uh, named him as an unindicted co-conspirator in the cover-up of Watergate. Here, um, you know, Trump is basically being uh, put in the position uh, accused by Cohen of of having been involved in a conspiracy to violate campaign finance laws. Yeah, we get a little ahead of ourselves when we're talking impeachment, given what Brenda just said. But right. nonetheless, I, well, think I think people two, do two issues. About that. One, one issue is everyone has said that Mueller and the Department of Justice have said they're not going to indict a sitting president. I don't know if that's true, but that's what everyone's reporting. Second issue, I think, I mean, I agree with Brenda. It's it's not like this is automatically a violation of law. But I think, I mean, there's always arguments. But I think given what Cohen said, I wouldn't, if I were picking a side, I would pick the prosecution side. Mm-hmm. It sounds, um, you know, that, that they're going to be able to prove it was done for the campaign. But, yeah, I mean, campaign finance, I think, Many candidates probably get a, uh, get on the wrong side of the law through sloppiness or whatever. I don't think this was that. But um, but then it's usually where they get caught is the cover-up afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, and lying to the FBI about well, what happened. That's the key, or the right? Money. Don't yeah. commit yeah. perjury. Right, right. <laughs> don't lie to the FBI. Just ask Martha Stewart, right? Yeah. That's the and way lots that of other works people. out. I mean, there's lots of details that haven't come out about this. Like, yeah. Like what were the conversations between uh, Cohen and and Trump. I mean, I think I think I think there was a, a recording of one of them released, but it was a little bit hard uh, hard to follow. But I mean, we there would need to be a lot more detail about. So, what did the the candidate for office, Trump, uh, instruct Cohen to do? What conversations did Cohen have with other members yeah. of uh, the campaign? The, a number of them are referred to. Yeah, uh, in 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 the in the uh, guilty plea, but there's no there's no detail on any of that. In fact, you know Trump's name is nowhere in the the deal. It's just uh, I think candidate one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think the next thing people are going to be looking at is whether Cohen and Manafort march over to uh, 
to Mueller's office and begin to talk. As a matter of fact, Lanny Davis, the attorney for Cohen, has indicated he's more than willing to right, have right. that conversation. That's right. a big deal. Right. Yes, and, and Lanny Davis is, of course, remember Lanny Davis is a Democrat, but remember uh, Lanny Davis is suggesting that uh, Cohen has inform- information that would implicate the president in the Russian hacking of the Democratic National Committee uh, uh, records and has other uh, information uh, on uh, the president. He's also they've also suggested that Cohen would be willing to go testify to Congress uh, right. about what of what he knows. And of course, earlier there was a suggestion uh, by Cohen that uh, President Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting with a Russian uh, lawyer uh, at the time that it happened. What does Manafort have to give uh, the uh, prosecutor? Uh, who knows what he has to give, but he's he's got he's facing another prosecution in District of Columbia, right? Correct. And um, and he, you know, it sounds like what he was convicted of, he would be doing at least ten years, and under the federal guidelines, mm-hmm. he's going to do eighty five percent of that. So I think he's sixty nine or something. So mm-hmm. a big chunk of the rest of his life could be in jail, and so so it seems like he either deals or. Um, the other interesting thing uh, is would would Trump pardon him, which he certainly has the power to do. Now, whether there's been some um, people opining, well, well, you might have the power, but if you do it for the wrong reason, you could still get charged with obstruction. Um, and then if he does get pardoned, uh, does he have a right now to, depending on what the pardon is for, does he, uh, can he still say, I'm, uh, I refuse to, uh, testify because it'll incriminate myself if you, if you have a pardon on that and it doesn't pardon you from state issues. So it's a very complicated um, with political consequences. Obviously, yeah, I mean, oh, depending yeah. on when it happens, if it happens before. November. And that's the thing. Like Bill was saying, is it impeachable? Sure. I mean, impeachment is a pretty broad standard. It's whatever Congress kind of decides. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think that's basically it. Yeah, yeah. high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. You know, clearly a conspiracy to. Um, violate campaign finance laws so that you get elected president, that would be a high crime and misdemeanor. Obstruction of justice of the investigation of Russian influence on the election would be a, a, a high crime and misdemeanor. So so there, we're clearly uh, in that ballpark, although there's lots of lots of facts we still don't we still don't know. One thing Manafort can offer is he was at the Russian the Trump Tower meeting in June 2016. He he probably knows whether the president knew in advance. And a lot of Russian contacts <clears throat> yeah. also, needless to say. Right. A couple of tech – did you want to say something? No, I was just going to say one thing. We kind of talked about this before the um, show that, that some of my friends have been asking me. They, they, they keep saying, well, if Cohn was Trump's lawyer, how can he – testify against I thought you know I thought you guys had to keep your mouth shut under the attorney client privilege and your answer is well I think it's <laughs> once again it's like most things it's complicated um, first of all you have to only um, you have to be the attorney and acting in an attorney role there's some question um, you know apparently Trump said he never told him to pay so if Cohn did this on his own he's not acting as an attorney there and then even if you are my attorney, someone is my attorney. And I mean, not every conversation with your attorney is protected. If we're talking about the chances of the Cardinals in the playoff, that's not part of our legal representation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if we if if you're my client and I'm your attorney and we're talking about stuff that related to your re- representation, but we let Bill in the room hear it, we breach the privilege that way. So there's lots of ways to breach it. Mm-hmm. The other, the biggest one is the crime fraud um, exception, which if we're doing something illegal, and I think. You know, uh, too many people watch that TV series Breaking Bad where uh, the the lawyer character Saul would just come in and say, give me a dollar and everything's protected. That's not how it works. Uh, That's very bad legal ethical training. Um, The new season of Better Call Saul is just about to I watch that too and he's violating it there too. So it doesn't work that way and the the privilege is easily breached. Also, there's – I read and I, I assume this is true that and I, I don't really understand why they did this, but you know, th- when they seized all these documents and tapes from Cohen, um, they had a special master go through to make sure mm-hmm. we're not going to disclose anything privileged. And Trump's lawyers waive privilege on some of it. No, Correct. that that doesn't make sense to me at all. Well, Have you guys they, figured that? Unless, unless they, they thought, thought he there was, was nothing there, nothing there. But man, that seems like a very risky strategy to me. I would never waive. A couple of more points that I want to make on this particular subject, but I have to take a break. Let's do that now. We'll come back, deal a little bit more with uh, this story, and then move on to some other important things. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Now back to our legal roundtable panelists, Bill Feivogel, Brenda Talent, and Mark Smith. Uh, a couple of peripheral things. Well, let me take a phone call here before I just move out of this particular area. David in Webster Groves has been waiting. He wants to talk about Corn uh, and Manafort as well. David, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Oh, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I've, I've been studying Manafort and Cohen for years, and they, these guys are not run-of-the-mill you know, gangster types from New York. Paul Manafort has been running PR for dictators for 40 years. And it's kind of ironic that Trump is pretending to be opposed to the deep state when many of the dictatorships that he ran were CIA fronts. So I'm wondering, you know, the media isn't really covering Manafort's long time. I I think he started with Ferdinand Marcos, uh, Jonas Savimbi, Paul Taylor, Forgetting some of the, there were six different dictatorships he ran, plus seven attempted coups. Right, David, you have a, a question that you want to put to this. Well, uh, when you look at the idea that these guys had a business license to run dictatorships, and then they start to run the management of the president of the United States, uh, this is a little more uh, uh, chilling. And uh, so I'm, I. I'd, think that your guests are kind of playing this down. This guy is really dirty and dirty for decades. Okay, thank you for the call. Well, I I don't think we're trying to play anything down, and you seem to know a lot more about Manafort's background than I do. I mean, I guess my knowledge of him, and and I think it relates to this case, is is the 
uh, support he gave to the Ukrainian dictator who was a puppet of Putin's, uh, and that certainly seems to be relevant to this to this whole this whole matter. Uh, I mean, I do think that it, it's pretty clear from what Manafort has been convicted on and what he's been charged on that he did that he was involved in some dirty foreign dealings um, after, in, in the, uh, you know, the late 2000s and early 2010s. Yeah, and what we're talking about basically are the charges and the outcome uh, in his yeah. trial. And actually one interesting thing, the, the judge in that case, is his name Ellis? Yes. Yeah, who's apparently kind of a, um, a pretty demanding um, kind of crusty old, we're going to do things, wants you to know he's the smartest room, man in the room thing. But he was yelling at the prosecution when they would, like, talk about Manafort's spending. He's like, look, at that's that's not what he's here for, and we, we're not talking about that. that, so. that that's another issue. The, the, uh, the judge in the case, a lot of people said he seemed to favor uh, the defense during the entire proceedings. I think he's just, I mean, you know, there are federal judges who are just tough, and they want things done their way. way. Yeah, yeah and, they, and, and it sounds like he said some things to the defense, too. I, I, I mean, the defense is not putting on a case. I guess they did an opening statement. He chastised them for, I forgot what it was, but um, I'll think of it. But but the prosecution is putting on the case, so there's more opportunity yeah. for him to get on their case. Yeah, well, a lot of federal judges think they're emperor in their domain. Uh, but I do think he was a lot tougher on the prosecution. And, uh, you know, there were a number of pieces written by other judges saying – uh, saying that. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take one more call on this subject, then we'll move along. Fred in Glendale uh, wants to talk about your concern about uh, attorney-client privilege. So let's bring him in. Go ahead, Fred. Uh, hi, Don. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if this uh, sanctity of the uh, lawyer-client uh, relationship, is that codified in law or is it established anecdotally by tradition? Well, there are there are ethical rules that lawyers are bound by that are in writing. They're different from state to state. And then, you know, there's um, uh, rules of evidence that would typically exclude this kind of uh, testimony. And there are state statutes yeah. that also recognize that privilege. Right, right. And, and in fact, can extend it to other relationships besides yeah. just attorney-client. Right, that's a very good point. It's not just attorneys. Uh, a question here from e and an emailer. Why did Cohen never say Trump's name? Could this help Trump in the future? I don't think it will help Trump. There's no question who he's referring to. Uh, but, you know, I think that, that what Cohen's answers were consistent with the way the entire plea deal was announced, that Trump's name was not in at least I, I read through it. I didn't see where Trump's name was ever listed or the Trump Corporation. It just referred to, you know, Candidate One and and uh, Corporation One. Uh, so I think it was just consistent with the way the whole the the whole uh, the plea was carried out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. I had one other question. One other point I wanted to make here very quickly. Michael Avenatti, who is the attorney for Stormy Daniels, now thinks that he has uh, the grounds he needs to depose President Trump on the basis of what uh, Mr. Cohen said in court yesterday. <laughs> Does anybody have any feeling as to whether or not that's the case or not? Well, I think he's got a lot stronger case. I mean, the the judge had put off a uh, decision yeah. on that until after the Cohen criminal matter was uh, completed. I mean, I guess you can argue that now this completes the, the you know the main criminal matter against Cohen, and although I guess others other criminal matters could still come up. Uh, so I think Avenatti probably does have a pretty good argument 
that he should be able to depose uh, Trump in sort of the same way in which uh, President Clinton was deposed. Okay, uh, enough of this. I'm sure we'll hear plenty more in the uh, hours and, and days to come. Let's move on to uh, one of the big stories that affects uh, our, our discussion, our topics uh, on this program. Uh, in the recent election, Wesley Bell defeated uh, Bob McCullough in the county prosecutor's race. It seems only a formality now that he will be the next prosecutor, barring some, uh, something that we don't anticipate uh, in the November election because he's unopposed. Um, I'll start with you, Bill. What, what do you make of this? This is quite a change in the prosecutor's office. Yeah, a huge change. I mean, I've never uh, – I was just uh, stunned by the, the result, winning and winning big. Um, I mean, I think we talked about this a month ago, and I think I made the mistake of saying I didn't see, didn't see him winning. Um, I mean, my friends, a lot of my friends and I talked about it beforehand. Uh, do you see any way in which he could do this? None of my friends <laughs> saw any way for it to happen. Um, I think it's a, a real, um, I mean, it shows that the reform movement that grew out of the events in Ferguson and the Black Lives Matter uh, has a, a lot of power. I mean, it was the power at the voting booth that uh, elected Kim Gardner in the city of St. Louis, and it was the power that elected um, that elected Bell in St. Louis County. Um, it's also the influence of some outside money. I mean, um, Gardner got a bunch from Soros. I think that had an impact. And didn't Bell get like 90000 or something from... I think the ACL, National ACLU, is that right? Or am I, I think indirectly through the ACL, yeah. ACLU. But, yeah, but, you know, that that doesn't account for either of those, the size no, of but, either of those. No, but you've got to have some money. Or, I mean, it makes I mean, it a lot easier. McCullough had been prosecuting attorney for 28 yeah. years. He was so he was such a political force that force. no one even was had the running guts to run him. against right. him. Yeah, and, I, would, I, I was completely surprised by it, too. Yeah. Brenda, do you have any sense of how the office might change as a result of this? Well, obviously, um, Mr. Bell has put out a number of policies that he wants to pursue. And although it is a partisan election, as a citizen, I often question whether that office should look like it's partisan in any way. And for him, in my opinion, to signal certain decisions he's going to make that you would say there, it's prosecutorial deci- you know, uh, discretion. But for him to signal things like I'll never pursue the death penalty, those types of issues makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not quite sure that that's the way a prosecutor should conduct their office when they've got a range of options available to them. Certainly he can exercise that discretion at any point. Um, that's a little disconcerting, just as is dis- disconcerting when he says what he's going to do with people who have um, are caught with low dosages of marijuana, which, again, I in, in many ways I sim- sympathize or empathize with where he's coming, but Come on, guy. Have you read about Al Capone and how they got him? (laughs) Sometimes. Tax chargers. (laughs) That's right. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what is actually implemented. I think there are a number of reforms that he's talking about that are much needed. But there are others where I'm like, well, maybe you really should be running for a different political office rather than prosecutor. Should this be a a political office anyway? I mean, should, should prosecutors, as they do all over the country, run for office? I mean, they have to have – in order to get reelected, they have to prove they're successful, right. and that means they have to run up the conviction rate. And sometimes they, uh, they do that in, in a manner that is suspect. 
or that they just need to show they're c- keeping the community safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have, I don't personally have an issue with the fact that people are running on different party platforms, but I do think when you're in the office, how you conduct that office, it's all about are you mm-hmm. keeping the community safe and right. fulfilling the functions of that office. I mean, I'd rather that the prosecuting attorney job or, or circuit attorney job weren't an elected official, but I really don't have a better way of, of, yeah. of making those choices. I mean, would you, want to, would you want to make them like you make judicial appointments? I don't know. I, so I, I, don't, I don't really have an, um, a, any kind of reform idea. And, you know, I mean, here, this is the, the, the fact that this was a, an election gave the people of St. Louis County a chance to say what mm-hmm. they thought about Bob McCullough and about, I guess, the way in which he handled the the uh, Darren Wilson investigation. That's going to be the really tricky thing, I think, for, uh, for Bill, is whether or not he um, uh, follows these uh, pleas by people like Justin Hansford and organizations uh, saying he should reopen. Uh, the investigation of Darren Wilson, which he could do because there was no no jeopardy ever attached, but uh, that would be a really divisive yeah. thing to do. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, if I if I were advising him, which I'm not, uh, I'd say stay away from that and concentrate on your your promises about getting rid, of, you know, limiting or getting rid of cash bail. I don't think that was ever attributed to him, that he would reopen the oh, Darren okay. Wilson case. That, that was uh, wishful thinking, I, I think, on the well, part after the election. Well, he said oh. he will respond to, really? to that. Really? I mean, his, his spokesperson said that they will respond to the calls from Justin Hansford and outside uh, groups, and there's a petition drive as well. Uh, so I haven't seen where he has yet responded to it. Maybe maybe he has, and I just haven't seen the report of it. But, I mean, you're right in saying that he hasn't committed himself to do that. But I think he has committed himself to take a look. One of my concerns is, you know, you've had McCullough in there for, you know, 28 years or whatever. And so most of the prosecutors are, that's all they've ever known. They're going to get a new boss. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of like what happened in the city I mean, there's lots of reasons to leave a prosecutor's office, and um, but you hope that I mean that that's a very professionally run, I think, well respected office that, and you don't want to have, you know, half the office leaving in the first year or something. I don't some, think that would be good. Some suggestion that McCullough might run as an independent. I don't think anyone gives much credence to that yeah, uh, possibility. I don't think anything. Is I don't know. The game. Uh, just one other thought about Wesley Bell. The uh, Bob McCullough made an issue during the campaign about his lack of experience. Uh, is there a, really a lack of experience there? Well, he's never. He has never tried a. Uh, he has never prosecuted a felony mm-hmm. case. Um, he's been I, on the other side. As a he's had, he, he was a public defender, I guess, in felony cases early in earlier in his career. I think he was a municipal judge. Uh, he also was maybe a municipal prosecutor in non-felony right. cases, um, but certainly not a long record of prosecutorial experience. Okay. Uh, we have uh, a caller who wants to get on this part of the conversation. Let's bring in Ron. He's calling from Ferguson. Go ahead, Ron. You're on the air. Yes. Um, full disclosure, I, I supported the, uh, the, the new prosecuting attorney. And uh, I support him 100 percent, but he must remember that his title is prosecutor. He's not a defense attorney and he's not a community activist. And I will vote 
up or down on him based on how he deals with hardcore criminals. And if, if um, he messes around and lets someone out on jail, out of jail on bail, and they murder somebody in the meantime, he will be a one-time prosecutor. I want a prosecutor that's fair so we don't have anything like with Eleanor Reasonover and this Judge Goodman and Buzz Westfall where they uh, knew that all the people involved was lying. Um, even with Bob McCullough, it was crazy for him to let people uh, uh, testify that he knew was not even nowhere near the scene. It, you know, it was crazy for him to do that verdict announcement at uh, at 8 o'clock at night. I mean, he, he just went downhill. And I'm, I'm glad we got somebody new, but he's got a, a, a job to do, and it's called prosecutor. Okay, thank you for the call, Ron. Any comment to his? I think that's uh, a very astute analysis, and I, I think I, I would agree. I agree. Yeah. And I, agree I as well. you know, McCullough said two easiest things in the world are to empty a jail and to fill a jail, and you got to get <laughs> somewhere in between. And I think that's what he needs to do as well. I mean, I think when when Bell is talking about uh, reform of, of bail, uh, he's he's not. Uh, I don't believe he is talking in terms of, uh, you know, bail for uh, dangerous criminals. Uh, no. criminals. I think we're talking about the situation that was highlighted so much after the Ferg- events in Ferguson uh, of people who didn't show up in court or have traffic violations and holds and end up in uh, municipal holdovers. Then we created debtor's prison then sometimes because go you from go to play- jail because you're poor. Right. Sometimes right. go from holdover to holdover. And, and these people have not even committed crimes. Well, you know, that, that brings us to another area I wanted to discuss briefly, and that is the uh, Forward Through Ferguson has put out a report uh, just, just recently dealing with such things. Very, very, it was charged with uh, really implementing some recommendations from the Ferguson Commission. And there were 47 priorities, I think, the Ferguson Commission had. There were many more recommendations, 47 priorities. Only five have been addressed since the, uh, since the Michael Brown shooting. Uh, and the uh, cash bond deal that we were just talking about is really kind of absent without an excuse in this particular case. What do you make of that? I mean, that's that's not a very good record in terms of people saying that they wanted to implement some of these reforms. Thoughts? Well, I, I thought that they had said that all of their priorities had experienced some level of implementation. Um, while you're right, only five but, were achieved. Yeah, right. Of course, I will come at it from a slightly different perspective, and that was I was actually really disappointed with the recommendations they originally made because I felt that it was sort of pulling out the old tried and true and failed solutions that we've seen in the past. They didn't have recommendations like real reform of education. I mean, when we look at our K through 12 schools, we Normandy, 10% proficiency rate. Why aren't we talking about real educational reform, more charter schools, more educational opportunities where you have choice? Um, when, you know, and then we see them haul out what I would call, again, the, the traditional, here, this will fix it, minimum wage increases. Well, I'm sorry, but the studies have shown time after time that these minimum wage increases, if they're not pegged to the market increases that you're already seeing, end up hurting the very people you're trying to help, the the people who need that first job where they get the experience so that they can move on to bigger and better things. And so to some extent, uh, a number of these solutions, I think, that they are definitely worthy. There, there are a number of them I could pick out and say, yeah, we need to do that, particularly in our criminal justice area. Mm-hmm. But there's others where it was just, well, I think that makes you feel good, but it doesn't really accomplish what you should be trying to accomplish. 
Well, that's something that has come up in this program uh, on a great that's many occasions. That's going to light up the phones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, we, we're pretty good in this community about talking about things. We want to have conversations and making reports, filling out reports, and, and having studies and then throwing them in a drawer and forgetting about them. You know, I think well, the concern is that that may be happening again. Well, I, I mean— you may or may not agree with the Fergusons. I'm I'm more comfortable with some of their recommendations than than Brenda, but but I do think it's nice that they keep kind of bringing it forward, saying here's where we are, and they've made it very clear that they don't want this to be just something on the shelf, and um, you know that they're they're looking at it and they're trying to show where things are happening. But it it's going to be tough because you've got all these disparate actors who need to come together. Or, you know, you get this balkanization in the county with all these different municipalities. You get a couple to come together, but you don't get everyone. I mean, this is one of the things Wesley Bell said, too, that, you know, he didn't see McCullough at the table with these things. And McCullough said, well, I didn't have the power, which I think is true a lot of times, but just getting people there to try and push it forward. Well, it's not on a fast track because the no. Ford through Ferguson people want to have these uh, implemented by 2039, so the 25th anniversary of the yeah. Michael Brown shooting. I, I thought what Rich McClure, you know, who was the co-chairman, yeah. said, I mean, he was quoted in the St. Louis Public Radio story as saying, while there's progress, there's not enough of a sense of urgency, not exactly. enough of a sense of commitment. I think that's, I think that's true. And, but, you know, if, if, there were, if there were just some way to harness Whatever got Wesley Bell elected yeah. to, the, to, the, to, to some of these 40-plus um, initiatives, uh, we'd make more progress as a community. Mm. Maybe we're getting there. We'll see. Have to take another break. We'll do that uh, now and uh, continue our Legal Roundtable panel discussion when we return. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to our conversation with Brenda Talent, Mark Smith, and Bill Freivogel, our legal roundtable panelists for this month. Um, a suit has been filed here in St. Louis, uh, filed by Jack Garvey, representing a number of counties in the state of Missouri. It's a suit against uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, companies, and pharmacies, basically as a result of the opioid epidemic, which I heard a figure this morning, 72,000 people died last year as a result of uh, op opioid overdoses. Anyway, uh, th these counties are trying to get at uh, the manufacturers to do something about this crisis. And I found it fairly interesting uh, what they're using as their strategy on this, which is to, is to uh, offset the expenses that the counties and Jefferson County, by the way, has just joined us. Uh, the county's um, expenses as a result of the epidemic, more police and that, that sort of thing. What do you make of that suit going against the, the giants of the pharmaceutical industry? Thoughts? Well, it's, an, it's interesting. I mean, I guess they accuse the pharmaceutical companies of, uh, you know, having not been forthcoming about the addictive nature of opioids and the and they are, they are accusing the pharmacies, you know, the Walgreens of the world, of not having um, handled uh, dispensing of them properly. Um, I think it's an interesting lawsuit. I don't I don't know what it's uh, what yeah, the chances of success are. It's um, 
I mean, it's part of a trend. There, there are these class actions happening around the country, and there have been some settlements already, big, big money settlements. So <clears throat> I think these – I think we'll see more of these. This is going to be like tobacco was. So, it sounds very much like yeah. it. Yeah. It also sounds very cumbersome to me. I mean <laughs> – I think it also yeah. sounds very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. Tobacco certainly deep, was huge, yeah, these are hugely lucrative. Yeah. Yeah, and, and part of the question is how much do individuals need to bear their own responsibility for right. but choices when got, they make? I mean, I think part of the argument is you've got these drug, you know, companies um, pumping out these the oxycontin to a particular pharmacy way beyond, and then and then it sounds like there's some allegations that. There were some, like, regulations that they should have complied with that they didn't. And so, um, I mean, I right, hear what you're saying. monitoring the, the supply chain and whether they're getting excessive orders from a particular pharmacy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it would seem like the individual would have an even stronger case here than – I mean, when you go to that question of individual responsibility, you bring up Brenda. I mean, for, for smokers, they knew forever that, that tobacco yeah. could kill them. Uh, whereas here, they were being uh, in opioids. They were being told by pharmacies and and drug companies that these were not. And let's not forget not a, doctors. Yeah, because doctors. someone and is doctors. prescribing them. And, and, yeah. and, and I think there's a question of whether these were supposed to be prescribed for just short-term pain or for long-term. And my understanding, and obviously I'm not a doctor, but that it was supposed to be more for short-term, like post-surgery, not chronic pain, and they started prescribing for chronic pain, and that's dangerous. Your point about the physicians, though, is very well taken. But that's yeah. where it starts. That's where it starts. And apparently the drug companies are working with a lot of physicians yeah. to really uh, encourage their use, as, uh, as they always do. Didn't Claire McCaskill say recently there are a couple of billion opioid pills distributed just in the state of Missouri? I mean, that's incredible. That is incredible. It is. Are we going to get to vote on gerrymandering uh, in the fall? Does anybody have a sense of that? It's uh, on the ballot, right? I don't know. So it's challenged um, – uh, in court for on this um, this uh, line of attack of there being too many subjects uh, as part of of this uh, initiative, so it not only deals with gerrymandering it also deals with campaign finance and lobbyist um, you know regulations on lobbyists and how soon can a person who's left the legislature become a lobbyist I think requiring a two year period so that's you know all, all of it is under the general umbrella of clean government reform, but each is, might be considered to be a different subject. And there was a time in the past when the Missouri Supreme Court said that if there are too many subjects on, uh, then the voters can't, you, you can't really know what did they focus on, did they, what what they really want want to, want to enact. Well, that, go ahead. Brian. Well, I was just going to add that's that's the purpose of the 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 law re, the legal requirement that there only be you know one subject or that they all relate to the same subject. So you don't want to have something where someone says, "Oh, I really like that. I want to vote for that, but I have to accept this poison pill in order to yeah. get both." So that, but but having said that, the court is typically. Uh, fairly deferential, particularly when you're talking about a ballot initiative and whether there is, in fact, multiple subjects or not. So uh, it, I think it's anyone's guess what the court will end up doing on this, this well, lawsuit. We were kind of saying before the um, show, you know, that's, at least my view is this is not the best way to run a, a state, to, you know, have laws um, where we just vote yes or no as a group mm -hmm. and, you know, you get in there and it's very complicated and I'm not sure people understand it. And, um, 
you don't get uh, a chance for kind of back and forth that you do in the legislature, or at least the way it's supposed to work in the legislature. So, but uh, we've seen a lot more of these initiatives, mm-hmm. you know, in the last ten, what twenty years, I guess. And but so this is democracy, though. Isn't it, it is. I mean, yeah, this is democracy with a small d. Yeah. You talk about a slippery slope if you start saying, well, we can't do this because the people aren't smart enough or enthusiastic enough to be yeah. involved. That's, that's I'm not saying no. that, but I'm just saying I don't know this is the way to, um, you know, to just have somebody go out and get enough signatures. You put it out and then it's up or down and then you do the next one and it's up or down. I mean, we just saw a very powerful expression of what the people thought about right to work uh, at the ballot box. (laughs) And so uh, I I don't disagree with with your point about it can sometimes be be pretty messy, but it can sometimes be incredibly powerful. And Don, in full disclosure, my husband is leading the charge against this particular initiative, so I have to give that disclosure. But I do think when you look at the initiative, you, you come away with, you know, I really would like to clean up the lobbying, the um, the campaign finance. And then when you look at the drawing of the districts, there are actually a number of potential constitutional issues associated with that, so that even if it passes, probably end up in the federal courts, mm-hmm. if not in the Missouri courts being decided. Yeah. How is Jim Talent doing, by the way? Oh, he's doing fine. <laughs> is he spending most of his time in Washington? No, he his... spends most of his time in Missouri because computers are a wonderful thing. <laughs> they are a wonderful thing uh, indeed. It's interesting on this particular issue that you have uh, Jim Talent uh, on one side and Jack Danforth on the other. And and I actually think that highlights the whole fact that there are two very different aspects of this bill, which people can focus on and say, I really love this aspect of it. You know, again, lobbying reform, campaign finance reform, and then looking at the whole how you draw district lines and saying, well, that's not so good. Because it really is, if I may give a little bit of background here, what it's going to require is that the districts are drawn to fairly – represent competitive districts for the two major parties. That seems a little bit odd. So we're actually going to have a a system for drawing our districts where we're going to try to balance out, and right now it would be Democrat and Republican representation. Um, And the way you'd have to do that, instead of having a bipartisan committee, which is what we really do right now, where you're supposed to draw districts that have, you know, uh, a certain number of voters and are contiguous, then in fact they've got to draw the district to represent mm-hmm. this this balance, and the the individual making that uh, decision will be a person appointed by the auditor. You know, you hear people saying that you can talk all you want about m- big money being in politics, and it certainly is an issue, but that gerrymandering may be the most important one because it for for decades at a time or a decade uh, ten year periods at yeah. a time it controls elections. Yeah, it's very important. And it's become very it's become clear, I think. That with uh, Anthony Kennedy leaving the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, which looked last year like maybe they would do something about this, uh, about political gerrymanders uh, on a federal constitutional level, probably will not because he's probably the fifth vote to do something, was the fifth vote to do something. So it's going to be up to the states to 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 fix this problem. Um, You know, I don't know if this is the very best way of of doing it, but. And and Brenda's clearly looked at it more than I have, but. You know, my understanding was that it was an attempt to get it away from people and more to a statistical mm-hmm. modeling that then people could 
But if if it's only doing, the, I mean, I agree with you. I think there would be challenges to it. Um, and then you have politicians. If the politicians and the legislatures are going to continue to draw the lines, I mean, they're protecting themselves. Yeah, but of if course, you come in with some the, model that where you can say, look, the computer put this together. We told it what we wanted. We all agreed on this. So now you're trying to draw this little finger out. It gets to take care of yourself. It gets harder to do that. And harder to have people who represent the community of interest. I mean, if you were to draw a line from St. Louis City all the way through West County. Yeah. And you're elected to represent that district. Really, who's your constituency? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And the time that we have left, I'd like to uh, hit, hit a couple of subjects there. More fun, perhaps, than than not. I don't mean to demean them uh, or say that they're not serious, but I've been sort of fascinated by the Amorosa case, as a lot of people have, and this and this taping that she did in the Situation Room in in the White House. Number one, I'm amazed at the quality of the tape. It doesn't sound like a cell phone to me. It sounds like a wire. But <laughs> what about this idea, and Bill? We've talked about this before. The idea of of taping without someone else's knowledge. How does that apply in this particular case? Well, I mean, it. You know, I I didn't check to see whether DC is a one-party consent it's a one state. Party so, consent. if it's a one-party consent state, then uh, in general, maybe not in the situation room, but in general, uh, the one party is is yourself. So, if she decides she wants to tape something, she doesn't have to get the consent of the other person mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, I'm uh, I I would think that there are uh, laws, however, that would apply to the situation room separately. Uh, I, I think it's another interesting sort of topic related to this very very same situation is you know to what extent can can President Trump um, try to keep her from disco- you know f- try to enforce some sort of non disclosure agreement that she yeah. agreed to during the campaign and the answer to that is he can't uh, non courts have said non disclosure agreements uh, of public officials are not enforceable where classified information is not involved. I think just being in the situation room, if you're talking about something that's not Yeah, if you're talking about the Cardinals, <laughs> I think that's okay. Yeah. Uh, but if you're talking about something that would be under the Espionage Act, then you, you get more of a problem. Got problems, yeah. yeah. But they do require that cell phones be uh, placed in a box outside the But she didn't even have room. security clearance, right? No, she didn't have, yeah. have security clearance, right. I mean— So what's she even know, doing in this situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who else in Washington has security clearances <laughs> anymore? Well, it, just, <laughs> it, it looks a little loosey-goosey, um, you know, just as an outside observer. But, you know, she seems a little out there, too, sometimes. I, you know, Trump, Trump very much handled his private uh, industry— uh, by requiring his employees to have non-disclosure agreements. Right, right. And that just doesn't work uh, when you're president you of the United States, uh, yeah. unless you're talking about classified information. Okay. Uh, Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> uh, yes. That's, that's every, <laughs> Brenda's shaking her head. <laughs> is this guy serving the president well, the man who says the truth is not truth? And uh, what else does he say? Truth is relative and things uh, of that nature. Well, I wouldn't want him representing me. <laughs> 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 I, 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 you know, it, to some extent, you wonder how much of this is someone who really shouldn't be out there. How much of this is just m- mixing stuff up? I don't, I don't really ascribe to the theory that all of this is planned out to create chaos, yeah. but it does. Um, this kind of language isn't helpful. And then the constant "let me clarify, let me clarify, yeah. let me clarify," yeah. you're just you're really just left shaking your head and saying, "Why? Why is that?" It's person too much out like there? the Bill Clinton. It depends on what is is or yeah. And and I mean, this is what lawyers do. We do this for a living. We spend our whole life arguing about what words mean and about 
you know, and, and yeah, you don't get metaphysical certainty in life all the time. But when you start saying things like this that just become immediate memes and and it's it makes it, it makes lawyers look really bad. Boy, it really hit the fan when he was on Meet the Press the other day and had that, that uh, truth comment. And, and, and what that related to was um, uh, so Giuliani, w- the way he defended it was was to say, well, uh, Comey says that the president told him to go easy uh, on Flynn. The president says he didn't talk to he didn't talk to Comey about that. So you know, these are two different truths. You know, how, how yeah. are we going to? Well, you know something. <laughs> I mean, the, They're not the truths, one person, right? <laughs> a professional law enforcement person, walked out of that meeting and and, and documented it. Also, I'm I'm guessing, uh, and this is just a guess, that in those thirty hours that the White House Counsel McGahn talked to Mueller, that there was uh, there 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 may well have been some confirmation yeah. that the president talked to Comey about that subject. It would have been better for him to say there are two sides to every, every story. story. Right. <laughs> a he said, she said. Maybe that. Yeah, because one person could have the truth, the other person could have the truth, or neither of them could have the truth. But, yeah. I wanted also to talk <laughs> about Michael the Avenatti, the St. Louisan, who's making a lot of headlines. But we have an email here that I think is more important at the moment. Dale Singer writes, former colleague here, is there a distinction between impeaching a president for crimes committed before he was in office and crimes committed after he's in office? And we only have a minute left. Yeah, you know, Dale, I, I'm not 100 percent certain on that, but I, my, my recollection as we think back to the Greitens, Case was I remember Mike Wolf, you know, the former uh, dean at St. Louis U and chief justice of Missouri Supreme Court, saying that in Missouri impeachment didn't cover actions that occurred before election, but that the uh, but that the uh, federal impeachment uh, can apply to actions that occurred before. I mean, I think I think we all think that Agnew could have been impeached if he hadn't resigned. For taking bri- you know taking all those bribes from uh, contractors uh, while governor of of Maryland, so I, I you know off the top of my head I'd say that it can de- uh, affect things that occurred before the election, particularly if it's relating to the election itself. That's got to be the final word. You wanted to say something, Brenda? Can no, I was just going to say in the end, it's the decision of the House of Representatives. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay, we have to leave it at that. Thank sure. you. Brenda, great to see you again. Brenda Talent, you. Bill Fry Vogel, and Mark Smith. Thank great you all so back. much. We've got to run. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh. <laughs>